This is just a model. The real bunny is 90 feet high. My workers finished it this morning. Since you're my junior executives, I wanted you to see it first. But this afternoon, everyone will meet the new bunny, and it's gonna be a beautiful thing when everybody bows down and sings the bunny song. The bunny song is how all my employees will show just how much they love the bunny. How nothing is more important than the bunny. How they do anything for the bunny. And it goes something like this. The bunny, the bunny, whoa, I love the bunny. I don't love my soup or my bread, just the bunny. The bunny, the bunny, yeah, I love the bunny. I gave everything that I had for the bunny. I don't want no health food when it's time to feed. A big bag of bunnies is all that I need. I don't want nobodies to come out and play. I'll sit on my sofa, eat bunnies all day. I won't eat no beans, and I won't eat tofu. That stuff is for sissies, but bunnies. What do you think? Um, what would happen, say, if someone didn't quite agree with everything in that song, so they didn't, um, didn't sing it? What would happen? What's that over there? That's the furnace. What's it for? Well, that's where the bad bunnies go. Let's just say, in my mind, if you don't bow down and sing the song, you're a bad bunny. You don't mean... But I'm sure that won't happen. It's almost time for the ceremony. I'll see you out there. Wow, that took a dark twist, didn't it? <laughs> I gotta ask, did anybody grow up on VeggieTales like me? Oh, man, so it brings back a lot of nostalgia uh, for me. Um, but of course, yeah, there are some dark twists. Now, just, I'm just curious, out of seeing that clip, does anybody know what Bible story we're talking about today? Okay, cool. We got some scholars in the house. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, part of the reason why I opened with a VeggieTales clip today is because we don't have Hope Kids today, so we have a few more kids and little ones in the service with us in here in the auditorium. And so uh, that is a nice illustration for us that leads into today's topic. Um, maybe that clip right there is a part of the episode that gave you the only introduction you ever had to this story. We're in a new series. It's called My Favorite Bible Story, and then in parentheses, and why. Well, this is one of my favorite Bible stories. It comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel is a book about four Israelites, young men to be specific about who they were. Their names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Specifically today, we are talking about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this story, um, like all stories in the Bible, it can be relevant to anyone. It is valuable to anyone. 
Regardless if you are young or old, woman or man, rich or poor, from here or from there, the stories of the Bible are relevant. And so as we go through this new series called My Favorite Bible Story and Why, we're going to take four weeks to go through some of our, as preachers, favorite Bible, Bible stories. And we'll talk about why and what they mean for our lives today. The Bible certainly has implications for the way that we live our life, especially if we claim to follow Jesus. So how does this story have to do with our lives? Maybe especially when you see a clip like that, you think that it's only for someone little. It's just a gentle, calm, nothing big story. But even at the end of that clip, you saw there's a dark, wild twist. Don't be mistaken. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, like, uh, like a lot of the other stories of the Bible... It, uh, it can be full of uh, nothing that is short of power, um, discomfort, alarming, explosive uh, type material that will entirely shock us. And so it happens in this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When I decided to do this story this weekend, I had a general idea of where I wanted to go. And then as I was continuing to study and pray over this, I felt like the Holy Spirit was kind of nudging me in a direction that I wasn't totally prepared for. And so I want you to know that this story talks about two of the things that are big no-nos in modern conversation. It dives deep into both religion and politics. Have you ever heard the statement, if you don't want to offend someone, don't talk about religion or politics? Well, this story hops into both. So I want to give you a fair warning. If you are someone uh, who might be tempted to be uh, 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 agitated um, or annoyed or bothered um, by, uh, by some of those things, I'm just the messenger, okay? Uh, so please remember that. And I promise to remember that if you're upset about this, you're not really mad at me, you're just mad at the Bible. And there's nothing that I can do to stop that. But I promise to uh, do my best to um, faithfully walk you through this story today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into the story. It's in Daniel chapter 3. And from the very beginning of Daniel chapter 3 in verse 1, we get an idea of the setting. We know that, excuse me, this is in Daniel chapter 1. This gives us an idea of the setting that leads us in. So Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were young Israelite Jewish young men. And they were kidnapped, essentially taken away from their families to live among the royalty, which sounds like a great job, until you realize that they're basically being taken so they can be used for their gifts to further the agenda of Babylon. Babylon was the place where the Israelites were living at the time. Israel is God's people. We know them as Israel throughout the Old Testament. And Israel had been sent into captivity. Babylon had taken them over. This was prophesied about a long time ago. In Jeremiah chapter 29, maybe if you graduated high school this year, maybe you remember somebody telling you Jer Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11, where uh, the Bible verse says, I, I know the plans that I have for you. They're plans for hope and a future. We think, oh, that's really wonderful. But then we look at the surrounding context of that verse. And somebody said that to you at your graduation. Maybe you're like, oh, hold on, hold on a second. Where am I going? Because the verse before that says, for 70 years, you're going to live in captivity in Babylon. What? I just thought I was graduating high school. Where am I going? Oh, you got a long ways to go, right? And uh, the surrounding verses, though, also say that when you go there, don't simply just withdraw. Buy into this community. Invest into them. Pray for the people who are hurting you. Care for them. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they find themselves living in captivity in Babylon. 
And then not only are they living in captivity in Babylon, they're even ripped away from their families. They're taken into the royal castle, if you will, the capital building. Now, they were taken because they were thought of as kind of the leaders of the bunch. And here's what King Nebuchadnezzar, everybody say Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of a complicated name, kind of hard to say, but nonetheless, King Nebuchadnezzar, go back one screen, we'll talk a little bit more about that verse. He says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So they were taken with a goal in mind. They were going to be furthering the agenda, like I said, of the royal service. They were going to be working for Babylon. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this, the rest of this story. When we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, imagine young men, but really they're probably boys. They're probably not even 18 years old yet. They've been taken away from their culture. They've been taken away from their homes. They've lost their sense of security. And they're being used. They're being told they have to assimilate. It seems dangerous, doesn't it? In this story, what we have, we have an example of someone believing that their culture, that their nation, that their way of life is better than somebody else's. And because they're the big guy, they get to beat up on the small guy and use them for their own purposes. Suddenly, this sounds like something that could tie into modern days, doesn't it? This happens. The story takes some dark twists. It's surprising. It's shocking. It's alarming. It's dangerous. When I think about the story of Daniel, I I can't help but think about a very extreme example. Uh, fast forward almost a century ago into Germany. There was a young man, his name was Boldar. And uh, he was uh, 18 years old when he joined the German youth. And by the time that he was 24, 25 years old, he was starting Hitler Youth. He was the architect of that program. If you've never seen, if you've never looked it up before, check it out on Google. I mean, it's insane some of the things that they would do to indoctrinate an entire generation of young people in Germany to follow Hitler's understanding and way of life that, and, and goals and dreams and aspirations that he had for the world around him. They just indoctrinated them. They used them. And this is similar to what was happening in Babylon Okay, so let's talk about this young man who was in Germany. He worked his way up. And there was, a, there was this uh, interview that he had with the, uh, the, uh, the London Times. And he gave this quote at the end of the interview that's still kind of shocking and alarming and bothersome for people today because we know what happened after that. Here's what he said. He said, One cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Hitler, I mean, we're talking about really evil stuff here, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany serves God. We cringe at that statement because we know where those kinds of ideas led. Within a decade, millions of people were dead. And why? It was because there was a culture, there was a nation that believed that their way of life ought to be elevated to the status of God's. And anybody who stood in their way was opposition and deserved to die. It's dangerous. And this is exactly what's happening in Daniel chapter 3. Did you know that this kind of story was in the Bible? Do you see how it relates? Do you see how scary it can be? 
This story tells us what happens and how to respond when a group of people, maybe sometimes even ourselves, maybe not in the way that Germany did once upon a time, but in one way or another, has started to idolize a certain tribal understanding, a certain national approach, a certain cultural understanding to life, and equating it to God's status, and seeing everybody else as an opposition, and forcing them to agree with the way that we see the world. It's dangerous. It's shocking. Did you know that this was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Let's dive into the story even deeper. This is in Daniel chapter 3, the very beginning of the chapter in verse 1. What we have is King Nebuchadnezzar. He made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Makes this huge statue, right? And maybe at first you're reading this, like, okay, that's like a little bit excessive. But it actually wasn't that uncommon for those days. Um, take a look at this next slide here. Uh, what we have here is we've got uh, Colossus of Rhodes. This is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Um, obviously, we don't necessarily know exactly what it looked like, but some artists have put together this understanding of what it was. This was a statue that was 98 feet tall, covered in gold. Um, some people think that uh, this, uh, this statue that was supposed to uh, resemble the, um, the, the god of the sea uh, would straddle, essentially, the, the port entryway into the country. And so when ships came through, they essentially had to be bowing down to their god. It was something that when ancient readers would have read this and they saw Nebuchadnezzar built such a giant statue like that, they'd be like, oh, he's one of those kings. Now, in case we think that we're like too far beyond this, I do need to say that it's like common for us to build kind of statues like that today too. In New York, we have this, right? And I'm not saying that it's bad or that it's good, but it stands for something. When you build something that big, it stands for something. What is it standing for? It's essentially an embodiment of values, right? And so when people would come into this country, they would have the values and understand that this is a place of power. And for us, we like to believe that the Statue of Liberty is a sign of hope, a sign of peace, a sign where people can come in and lay down their burdens, right? Again, I'm not saying that it's necessarily good. I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad. But I'm saying that we can understand this, right? That there's an embodiment of value in the images that we create. Okay, now let's go back into the story and we pick this up again in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar was not going to be using his golden statue uh, for a place of hope, or for a sign of hope, a sign of freedom, as a sign of a place where people can lay down their burdens. But instead, excuse me, instead he said, people of all races and nations and language, listen to the king's command. Bow down to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. What? How did that happen? You went from just being a king, and then you used all of our tax dollars and national budget to build this giant statue. Now you're freaking out, telling us that we all have to bow down and worship it, and if we don't, you're going to kill us. How did this get here? Well, here we have a king who takes his values, understanding, approach of life. And what's his approach to life? It's the Babylonian Empire. It's power. It's the power of his kingship. It's the gods that he serves. And it's all wrapped up in this image, this gold statue that he has. It's interesting, in the original Hebrew of this text, statue. It's a word called solemn. Everybody say solemn. Pretend like you're saying tzitzi fly, you know, but solemn. It's solemn. And it means statue, and it also means image. 
And it can even mean idol. So you've got this statue, but it's this image. And we're not given in the text exactly what this image is supposed to look like. And maybe that's intentional because what's the image in your life that you bow down to? It's funny how the words of scripture just bounce off the page and reach into our hearts. But it's this image. Nebuchadnezzar is building this image. And he's got this understanding of life. He says, you have to assimilate to that. He's idolizing, idolizing his ideal image of what life looks like. You know what that's kind of like? I mean, like, this is a very minor example of it. But do you ever wonder why nobody's as impressed with your trophies as you are? It's because they didn't build up the work to, to earn them, right? So this is the Riverside 5K Church's Cup. Uh, congratulations, Lutheran Church of Hope. You are the winners! Uh, big credit to the Springer family because they're really fast and they basically single-handedly won this for us. Uh, and we are, the, we are the champions still because there was a pandemic last year, and I guess still, uh, so they didn't have the race last year. So we've, been, we've hang, hung on to this bad boy for two years. Kind of crazy, huh? I tell you what. I had this in my office for a year straight, like right behind my desk. Kind of arrogant, but, you know, I want people to know we're fast. Do <laughs> you know how many people ask me about it? Zero. <laughs> you know how many people I wanted to ask you about it? Everyone. Even sometimes I just move off to the side. Hey, did you notice this? It's a trophy. It's huge. But people aren't interested in it. Why? It has nothing to do with their life. Sometimes we forget the fact that some of our values, some of the things that have to do with our culture, some of our upbringing is entirely foreign to someone else. And so when we get so upset and so offended that someone else doesn't appreciate everything in our life the way that we appreciate it, we get offended. You know, have you ever gotten back from a trip and someone doesn't really want to see your pictures as much as you want to show them? <laughs> I've got a new niece. I want to show everybody pictures all the time. And people are very generous and they look at them. But after a while, it's like, she's not your blood, is she? Okay, I get it. Yeah. You know, but she's so cute. I'll do it again. I'll, I'll show more pictures. I will. But it's because somebody else didn't go through the work to get this. And so it's, it's not a part of their life. You know, maybe you worked for it, but they didn't work for it. And much more importantly, this is not working for them. It has nothing to do with their life. If somebody's not interested in something that you have that is important to you. It's not because they don't care about you. It's just because maybe that piece of your life doesn't relate to their life. And they care about it to an extent because it matters to you and you matter to them. But you can't expect them to stare at your trophies all day in the same way that you stare at yours. You can't expect somebody to watch your high school tape for hours and hours and hours, no matter how much of a stud you thought you were or are. It's not because they don't like you. Don't get offended over that. There are deeper and more meaningful relationships that we can have in our lives. These are not the images that we live for. When we make these our images that we live for, we are missing out. There are way better images in this world. Way better images in this world. Ancient readers would have read this and seen that word solemn. It's a theme that shows up throughout the Old Testament. Solemn, you know, like I said, it's statue, it's image, it's idol, it's all those words wrapped into one. 
It would have taken them back to the very first theme that's introduced in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. If you're ever wondering, hey, where is this theme introduced? And you're ever wondering what page this is on? Page 1. This is in Genesis chapter 1. Check this out. And it says this about the way that God created people. On the next slide, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created them in his own image. Again, it's that word solemn. God already created an image. When human beings create their own image to be worshipped, what are they doing? They're taking something that's been created and giving it this image, right? And then they're saying, let's treat that creation like it's the creator. And it makes no sense, does it? It makes no sense at all. My wife, she makes these, uh, these pumpkin chocolate chip muffins. And I'm telling you, they're the greatest pumpkin chocolate chip muffins in the world. The one time I tried to make them, they were not pumpkin. I forgot the chocolate chips. And basically, they were flat. Nothing to it, right? Why? Because I was adoring the creation rather than the creator. What I really needed to do was tell my wife, I love you so much. You're the best. Either can you please make these for me every single week or just teach me, right? I needed to be honoring the creator, not so much the creation. And in Babylon, they were honoring the creation, the image. God decided that I am going to create you, and I'm going to partner with you, and alongside of you, I'm going to allow you to rule over the earth. Through you, I'm going to rule over creation. In the book of Romans, it kind of gives this great summation of why we sin. It's because oftentimes we turn created things, and we treat them like the creator. We create an image out of something. When God has already made image, you're the image of God. We try to take created things and put an image on them and say, see, it's the creator. It's the beautiful thing. I need to honor and live for that. God's already done it. And that's why in Exodus chapter 20, this is at the very beginning of the, uh, the Ten Commandments on the next slide, what we've got is you must not make for yourself an idol. Again, it's that solemn word. Of any kind or an image, solemn. Of anything in the heavens or on earth or in sea that you would worship. You're not supposed to do that. Don't create an image to worship. God's already put his image on earth. It's you. It's the people around you. God's already created his image. We don't need to make more images. How cool is that? You've got God's genetics. You've got his DNA. The image of God is in you. How cool. Let's hop back into our story in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they resist. And maybe you hear that and you have a, a word that comes along with resist, right? Resistance. You, you think about the resistance that you gave your parents when they said it was time for bed. You think about the resistance that your children give you when it's time for their bedtime, right? It's like, it's borderline violent, <laughs> scary. You're wondering how the night's going to end. <laughs> ah! You know. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they, they resist, but, but they resist in a different way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the king calls for everyone to bow down to this image that is not God, it is a created thing, they, they won't do it. They resist. They follow God's word. See, they're not taking something small and making it bigger than it needs to be. Everything in your life that God's given you has value and meaning. And because God's given it to you, it has value and meaning. 
So every single day that you have, even those days that feel like they're meaningless and mundane, they have value because God gave it to you. God gave you life on this very day. Make the most of it. But at the same time, sometimes we can make everything out of a small thing. And no matter how badly King Nebuchadnezzar wanted his image to be the greatest thing, the biggest thing, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was larger than life, right? At least he appeared larger than life. So what do you got here, right? So right here I've got a, a magnifying glass. And what do magnifying glasses do? Magnifying glasses take small things and they make them look bigger, right? So let me tell you like one more thing about running. If you're new here today, you're like, does he always talk about running? You can tell them yes, because I have nothing else going for me. All right, thanks for reminding me. No, I'm just kidding. So this is like the greatest, like this is, this is like the coolest item that I own. Um, other than my wedding ring, baby, I love you. Um, but uh, I know she's up there somewhere. Anyway, but this is uh, my medal from the Boston Marathon in 2018. And, uh, and like, I just thought this was so neat. It was one of those things I was showing her. I'm like, do you want to see it? You want to see, do, you want to t- do you want to touch it? And they're like, no, not really, you know. And I'd analyze and I'd look at it, you know, and I wouldn't actually take a magnifying glass to it, but I might as well because I'd starting to pay attention to the smallest little details of it and making a small thing a very big thing. And it's funny how sometimes when you make a small thing a very big thing, it almost starts to ruin itself for you. You know what one thing I didn't realize about this was before I started analyzing everything about it? I didn't realize that it was made wrong. You don't know what's wrong with it? So this ribbon that they place on it, right? The print was, they put it on inside out. And I didn't know until I started like making such like deep and detailed analyzations of it. And I realized that I have to like twist it and, and maneuver it and I have to wear it and look weird in order for it to be facing out. But then it's twist, you know, because then the title's out here and, and it can bother me, right? Because I'm making this little thing a big thing. I'm putting a magnifying glass on something that really doesn't matter. As Christians, we're not called to put magnifying glasses on the little things. We don't just put magnifying glasses on things that we love either, do we? We put magnifying glasses on things that we don't like because we want everybody else to see them, right? We see a blemish on somebody else's life. Hey, everyone, you know? Kind of makes us feel better about ourselves. As Christians, we don't put magnifying glasses on small things as if to overwhelm us. Instead, we do something different. We take binoculars, or if you were really cool, you'd have a, like a telescope, right? And what do binoculars do? They help you see things that are far away for their real size. In the back over there right now, I, I see Matt Franco sitting uh, in the entrance back there, and right now he looks very, very small. But if I look through here, I, I see him for his real size. And it, Hi, Matt! I can see all of you, you know, for, for your real size and for who you really are. You're like, now you're not just like this small little figure. You know, you take a giant telescope and you look at planets. And this thing that looked like it was just a small thing that had nothing to do with your life, you put the telescope on and you're like, oh my goodness, it's huge. It's so big that it's, it's impacting my existence. The sun, I mean, it looks small in the sky, but it's enormous. And it impacts every breath that you take. As Christians, we're not putting magnifying glasses on the small little things to overwhelm people with them. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're important things in our life. If God gave them to us, they matter. If it's in our life, it matters to God because we matter to God. 
But as followers of Jesus, we're not putting magnifying glasses on little things to overwhelm people, to drown them in it, to force it on them. As Christians, we hand people binoculars. We give them telescopes. We show them the big stuff. Look at everything. The world's even bigger than you thought. These things that are out there, they're more beautiful, impactful. There's stuff out there that's helping us breathe that we never even knew about. Take a look. We point our binoculars to God. We point our telescope to God. Now, here's where the analogy falls short. Too many of us believe that we have to get a telescope out or we have to get a binocular, a set of binoculars out to see God. But no, no, God's come to us. He's come near. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're faced with a king, face-to-face, who's visible and intimidating, the most powerful person in the world at that time, the king of Babylon, they see someone bigger. They know someone who influences every breath of their life, who gives a beat to their heart every second of the day. And so they're not going to put a magnifying glass on a king They're not going to put a magnifying glass on this image that he's created because they see and they know God. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's filled with rage, right? It's in Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. I'm sorry, I keep on hopping, but go back just one more, one more time. This is in Daniel chapter 3, verse 14. He asks, is it true? King Nebuchadnezzar asks this to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three young Jewish men The king of Babylon is having this conversation with them. He's asking, is it true? Now, the verse before this, it tells us that he is very upset, right? Is it it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue, the image, the solemn that I've set up? Is this possible? You are powerless. I could kill you. I already took you away from your home. I took you away from your culture. You have to do what I say or I will end your life. Is it actually true that you would do that? I can't believe it. And as everyone else is bowing down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there saying, it's true. How can they do that? Because they see the bigger thing. They know the real image of God. And it can't be created by creation. It can only be given by the creator. King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, listen, if you don't do this, I will throw you in the furnace, right? I don't know how you started to idolize something that shouldn't be idolized. Uh, And for the record, as the Ten Commandments teach us, don't idolize anything other than God. You know how you started to idolize like a system, a way of life, an ideology, a community, even a nation. It's when you've stopped to value human life. And instead, you're so obsessed with making sure everybody notices your system and your work and your image. I think that's the test. When you've started to miss the beauty of the image of God because you're putting a magnifying glass on just the images that you've 
tried really hard to put together. King Nebuchadnezzar is idolizing his image. And he's lost because of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respond to him. And it's quite surprising. Again, they resist, but it's not like this violent and scary fight. Instead, they, they, they call him majesty. It's kind of funny. They say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. They continue on to say this, but even if he doesn't, I see God. I know how big God is. I know that he can save us. I think that he will save us. But maybe he won't. We want to make it clear to you, your majesty. Take the title that you want. Your majesty, fine. We will never serve your gods or worship the gold image, the statue, the song, the idol that you've set up. Psalm chapter 73 says this, that whom else do I have in heaven but you? They're saying to the most powerful person in the world, I know that you could end my life, but you're not God. I know that I've been working for your system. I've been putting my best foot forward to try to give you the best community possible. I've honored you in the ways that I'm called to honor you, but you're not God, so I'm not going to honor you like you're God. I will not idolize an image that was created by creation. We will only bow down to the creator. Even if he doesn't save me, if God decides that I live, he decides that I live. And if God lets me die, I might not get the answer to why. But King, you are not God. No matter how hard you try to push your systems, your ideas, and your nation, you're not God. What kind of faith does that take? I've heard preachers before talk about the difference between if faith and though faith. I think the most famous sermon ever given on this topic was Martin Luther King Jr. And he was a person who was thrown in, into all sorts of furnaces of life. And all he would have had to do was bow down to people. You know, all right, fine, I'll assimilate. I'll, I'll just go with it. But peacefully, not violently, not uh, in, a, in a scary, abusive type of way, but, but no, he peacefully preached. I will not bow down to creation. See, there's if faith, right? If faith is, I will have faith if my dreams come true. I will have faith if my ideology is accepted by everyone. I will have faith if my community prospers. I will have faith if my tribe is the most powerful. I will have faith if my nation is on top of the world. That's conditional. And your God has become whatever is after the if. I mean, think about it. When you make a deal, I will give you this if you give me that. What do we really want? We want the that. We want what somebody could give to us. And so we do it with God. God, I'll believe in you if you make my dreams come true. Who's your God? 
Is it God, the creator of all image? The giver of the image of God? Or is it just some created image that you've got in your mind of what dreams should be? And then there's though faith. Though I may not see where this is going, I will trust you, Lord, because who else do I have in heaven but you? I mean, even if we just took the logical approach to this, who else do we have? Who else is powerful enough? Who else is king over life and death? Who else is Lord over all of creation? Who else do I have in heaven but you? Just logically speaking, who else am I going to lean on? But now think from the heart. Not just logically thinking, but beautifully feeling. You have a God who loves you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, though we might die. I don't have anybody in heaven but God. And I'm glad it's him. Because he goes with me. We read the story, we think, okay, well, they said, even if he doesn't, but hey, good news, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he did. He, God came through. Because as you see on the next slide, uh, there seemed to be a fourth person that showed up in the furnace with them after the king said, that's it, throw them in, it's over. The king says, look, I see four men unbound and walking around in the fire unharmed and, and the fourth looks like a god. They said, even if God doesn't save us, again, maybe you're saying, well, well it seems like he did. Kind of. Like he didn't save them from the fire because they were sent into the fire. And yet he delivered them from or through the fire, however you want to put it. I mean, I don't know. At the end of the day, they still went into the fire, but the point was this, to their great surprise, God was with them. At least to the great surprise of the king, God was with them. There's something so beautiful when you realize that someone is with you. Furnaces surround us in this world, don't they? And at some point, each one of us has to walk through them. And it's not fun, and it's not fair. And sometimes you cry out to God, God, why aren't you doing something? But there's this beautiful realization when you look to your side and you realize, I'm I'm not alone. You know, there's the medal that they give you at the end of a race, right? And you can, like, look at it, and you're amazed by it, and you're like, oh, this is amazing. I hope somebody else values it like I do, you know? I tell you what, there's something way better at the end of a race for me. Um, So 2019, I I went up to Fargo, and I ran a marathon there, and Abby and I weren't married yet, but she came up to watch, and my friend Brock, he came up to watch, I get done with the race, and all I, it's fun. I mean, like, it was a crowd of thousands. Everyone's cheering me on. No. But out of, like, the 50 people who were there or whatever, I, I could hear their voices, you know? And then as soon as the race gets done, they put the medal on you, but I just, like, I couldn't really care that much about the medal. Because immediately, like, they found me, and they came up to me, and they're proud of me, and they hugged me, and... I mean, seriously, what would you rather have? Would you rather have the image that you were, you know, hoping that one day you might accomplish? Or would you rather have a relationship? 
Because if your way of life is the only way to do life, and anybody else who does it another way needs to be excluded, canceled, sent out, eventually the crowd's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. As followers of Jesus, we emphasize the images of God way more above any of our, any cre- of our own created images. We, we resist that kind of idolatry as Christians. So I want to get practical as we conclude the sermon today. How, as Christians, do we resist idolatry when we live in a world where quite often, you know, certain ideologies, uh, uh, certain ways of life. Where I mean, on it, and it's coming from every side, every angle, every direction, right? How do how do we resist idolatry in a world where it is so tempting? I just want to give five, I think, helpful pointers. Uh, the first one is pretty easy. It goes along with the commandment: don't equate anything with God. Don't equate your passion with God. Don't equate your ideologies with God. Don't equate your political party with God. This is a hard one, but don't equate your culture with God. There are many things that God gives you, but the things that God gives you, the things that God gives you are not God himself. Don't equate your country with God. Only God is God. We don't put microscopes on little things to overwhelm us or the people around us. Instead, we remember how big God is. We look to him. Okay, point number two. Be humble. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do you notice how their protest was? They didn't punch someone. You know, they, they, didn't, um, they didn't insult. They stood firm. They just simply didn't take part. They said to the king, your majesty. They were polite. I mean, that's probably what drove Nebuchadnezzar the most crazy, right? These are the nicest people in the world. Now I have to throw them in a furnace. But they were humble in their approach. Don't equate anything with God. Be humble. Next one, um, number three, don't withdraw. Don't withdraw. <laughs> don't go into withdrawal. Don't withdraw. I wrote that wrong. But don't withdraw. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they were employees of their government, right? Like, just because not everything was going right, like, they still believed that even though, like, even though this place is not my final destination, even though I identify with God first, I can still believe that God has called me to serve this community. You still take an active part in that. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 29, when God says, I am sending you into captivity. You're going to have 70 years of this. Invest in that community. Pour into them. Pray for your enemies. Number four, this has a lot to do with number three, know your home. Uh, one of the first ever pastors or theologians in the early Christian church, his name was Augustine. Uh, we call him Saint Augustine today. He talked about this idea called dual citizenship, where you are a citizen of heaven first. Every single person is a citizen of heaven first. Whether or not King Nebuchadnezzar knew it, he was created by God and he was a servant of God. And sometimes the other citizens of heaven have to remind the Nebuchadnezzars, you're not doing this right. But we still believe that we can pour into those people. We don't give up on them. We know our home. 
but we're not withdrawing. And then finally, see the real image of God, the real psalm. In Colossians chapter 1, it tells us this about the real image of God. As Christians, we believe that there is one embodiment of God, like one full embodiment of God. And it tells us in Colossians chapter 1, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. Jesus did not use images created by creation to gain more power and authority. Instead, he gave up his power and authority to secure safety, salvation, eternity, and a home for us. That's the image of God. We see the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. It's not just a little bit of God. It's not just influenced by God. It's God, the image of God. Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. And he is the one who does not use any image to gain power for himself. But because he is so in tune with the true God, he sees the value in the images of God surrounding him. So he gives up his place of authority and power. All throughout scripture, Jesus tells people, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the bread of life. I am the word, I am the good shepherd, I am God. Anyone who knows me knows the Father. The only way to the Father is through me. He's got a position of power, but his posture is love. His purpose is service. As Christians, let's not idolize images that we can create, but instead, let us keep our eyes on the image of God. Let's follow his direction to remind those around us they are creations of God. They are images of God. We don't have to create any more images. Nothing else has to be worshipped. See the image of God. You will experience your value. You will experience freedom from the insecurity of having to build up and celebrate your own images. And you will enjoy relationship with your creator and with all of his creation. Amen. Let's stand on up and sing.